0: You are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA
1: in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this.
0: All right. Thanks, Laura. Laura, serving as a scripture reader, just to highlight that. Did I forget the applause? Hold the applause, and we're still holding it for serving. All right. Thank you to all those who've been serving. Well, I hope you were able to get outside. What a different day out there. But yesterday, did you get outside and enjoy the sneak peek of summer? 90 degrees on May 1st. It was May 1st of 2005 that Esther and I were moving to Minnesota for the summer. It was still in our first year of marriage. She'd never lived here before. And as the plane is descending on May 1st, there's snow outside pelting the windows of the airplane. So you never know what you're going to get in May in Minnesota. But spring is well underway this season and things are growing outside. Yards and gardens, trees and plants. And I hope you enjoyed our table question, had a chance to go around and hear what's a favorite thing to plant and see grow. I want to share with you a new favorite that we have at our house since this last year. It's a plum tree, a toka plum, or it's called the bubblegum plum We planted it last year in memory of Esther's brother, so we've just loved watching this thing spring to life this year. But you know, my favorite thing to see grow is actually faith, and that's not a pastor answer to that question. I mean it for real, just me to you. My favorite thing to see grow is faith. You know, faith isn't a collector's item that you either have or you don't. But faith is something that grows like a tree or a plant or a flower. Faith can bud and blossom and bear fruit, or it can wilt or struggle or wither. Either way, we recognize that faith is dynamic and real, and a growing faith, a growing relationship with Jesus is the best thing on earth that you could ever have. So today we're going to talk about faith, forgiveness, and healing, and we're going to learn from Jesus, our King. We're still early on in the Gospel of Mark as we've began the study. We had a couple weeks in chapter 1, and now we're starting into chapter 2. Our plan for the summer is to study this Gospel, but by necessity of time, we're going to have to skip over portions of the text. And so my hope is that in between Sundays, on your own, in your own Bible reading, in your Y group— that you'll be able to cover what we miss. And so, for instance, we missed the story in chapter 1 about Jesus' first visit to Capernaum and also the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then after that, it said in chapter 1 that Jesus went out into Galilee, so that's the region that is this northern part of Israel. And there was a story of a healing of a man with leprosy. And those were all things that we had to pass over in our study, and yet we should have them in view as we begin now chapter 2. Because that's why it says, in verse 1, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, he's coming back, the people heard that he had come home. Now it's interesting that Capernaum is called Jesus' home, when in fact, he had grown up where? He was born in Bethlehem, but then where was he raised? In Nazareth, about 20 miles to the west. But now Jesus begins his public ministry in the last three years of his life and he makes Capernaum his home base. And so if you're able to join us for that Holy Land trip next spring, we're going to visit Capernaum and take a boat out onto the Sea of Galilee on day four of our itinerary there. Capernaum was an important city on the shore of Lake Galilee. It was an economic hub for the region, lots of fishing and ag ...and other light industry. It was just off the major east-west trade route. It was a military outpost for the Romans. And some of Jesus' disciples were from Capernaum. This was their hometown. Peter and Andrew, the fishermen. Matthew, the tax collector. And though it doesn't say, we think also James and John. Now Jesus, already by chapter 2, has gained quite a bit of attention. In Capernaum and throughout Galilee, he's been teaching... And healing people and casting out demons. And we read multiple times in chapter 1 that his fame is spreading. So by the time he returns home to Capernaum, word gets around in an instant and the crowds are there in a flash. And in this kind of ancient city, it really didn't take much to fill a house with people and to clog the streets outside. Excavations in Capernaum showed just how close the homes were built and how narrow the city streets were. So in America, we're used to having our space with big yards and wide roads and cities that sprawl out into the countryside, but that is not the case in other parts of the world. If you've ever traveled to places with a lot older history than the U.S., or you've been somewhere that is much more densely populated, you know how much narrower the streets and the houses get. So places like England or mainland Europe or even apartments in New York City, stacked on top of each other. They live on much smaller square footage than what we're used to, and that's how it would have been in Capernaum. So verse 2 in the text says, They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. We're going to notice in Mark that the miracles of Jesus don't stand alone, but they are tied to the authority of Jesus to preach. So in other words, Jesus' miracles verify his message. They're the proof in the pudding in a sense that what Jesus is saying is true and verified by God and we should listen. So Jesus is teaching in this story. He's in the middle of a sermon and some men arrive out there with a friend in the street on a stretcher and the text refers to this man as paralyzed but we're not told why. So we can think about it. Was it from an illness? Had he always been paralyzed? Or was it from an injury? It doesn't say, but it's clear that this man is significantly disabled and unable to get to Jesus on his own. So that's where his friends come in. And yet it's so crowded that they can't get in to see Jesus either. This is almost hard for us to imagine now in this last year where we've grown so accustomed to social distancing and being six feet apart. But think back to how it was, and you would be at something like the state fair, or you would be in a packed concert venue, or a, a subway in a, in a major city, or a stadium. I remember as a kid trying to get out of the Metrodome after a Twins game. Think about what that was like. Because that was the scene in Capernaum when they heard that Jesus was in town. And there was no way these friends were going to get their friend in to see Jesus. Until, and here I just picture it, you know, in like a a cartoon, the, the light bulb goes off. You can just imagine one of these four friends, you know, in frustration. They're trying to get their friend in through the crowd. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off as they're looking up at the house. Houses in Capernaum in Israel at that time looked quite a bit different than what you and I are used to. Comparatively, they would have been much smaller, single-story houses with a flat roof, so different than ours with the pitch on it. In fact, the roof functioned really like another room to the house. So it had a staircase leading up on the outside of the house to get there, and then they would use the roof as a place for work, drying laundry, a place for prayer, or even on a hot night to sleep. So to get up there, all these friends had to do was not get in through that crowded house, but they just had to go around the outside to the staircase. Now once they were up there, that's when things got really interesting. Literally, the Greek says, and I've changed it here for us in the text, they unroofed the roof. So this is a demolition job. Have you ever been part of one of those? It's kind of fun. Also a lot of work. The roof would have been made of wooden cross beams. It would have had smaller branches then laid perpendicular across the top. And then it would have been all thatched together with rushes and with dried mud. When the text says they were digging through it above Jesus, those are the layers that they're tearing through. And you can imagine all the noise and the mess that that would have created. And eventually, too, there's probably debris falling down on Jesus and all those in the room. Now Mark... You know, we have about a thousand questions here that Mark doesn't exactly answer. So you wonder, was Jesus still preaching while this was going on? Or at what point did he decide he needed to stop and everybody just watched? You know, I suppose if somebody started to drill a hole through the roof here, we would probably have to pause our worship service and see what was going on. Were people then shouting up at this because they're interrupting the sermon? What was the scene like? How about the damage that was done to, what was the homeowner thinking? You know, seeing a hole tore through the roof. Did the friends come back and fix it or pay for the damages? Mark presses on in his gospel. He's just not going to answer all these questions we have. But he presses on to the point. They dig a hole through the roof. They lower the man down on the cot. You have to imagine that. And then the next move is on Jesus. And I imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in that house as the dust settled. And then what happens in verse 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, It's striking, isn't it? Because normally in stories of healing, the faith of the sick person is what's in view. And here, the way this is phrased, it's the faith of the friends that Jesus sees. And it reminds me of someone like Job in the Old Testament and how he would make sacrifices on behalf of his children. Or how today, when we baptize a little one, we have parents professing faith on behalf of their child. And then over the years, they're going to be passing the baton. Now we shouldn't by any means miss the norm and the essential quality of personal responsibility in faith of each one of us coming to know and trust Jesus as our Savior. But yet this detail here suggests to me that we are sometimes called to believe on behalf of another that somehow in the mysteries of God... There is something to this. That there is something that Jesus can see when we exercise a kind of intercessory faith. And so some of you this morning are here and you have a non-Christian spouse. And so I'd ask you, what does it look like to contend in faith for them? Or some of you have a prodigal son or daughter or grandchild. And what does it look like to come before the Lord like Job on their behalf? Some of you have a friend at school. Students, you've got a friend at school that you care about deeply who doesn't yet know Jesus. And you get to be the friend, like Michelle said, who carries them on the mat. The one who brings them to meet Jesus. Now once the paralyzed man has landed in front of Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? The first thing he says is technon is what it says, child, or here it's rendered son. Now it's not a common way to address somebody who is not in your actual family, not common at all. In fact, Jesus only uses it one other time, and that's in Mark ten twenty four, where he says it to the disciples. And so what does that tell us? It says this is significant that he uses this word in this moment, and we can assume that he's done so for a reason. And I think it was to reassure this man. This man who is paralyzed, who probably wears that condition with a lot of shame, especially in their culture, and a man who has just come through the roof and stopped the sermon. Do you think he was nervous? Do you think he was a little self conscious? I think so. And so Jesus says, first word, child, my son. And then your sins are forgiven. Now that should catch our attention too, shouldn't it? The man is paralyzed. He has clearly been brought to Jesus to be healed, right? To be healed of his paralysis. But Jesus gives him something that he is not even asking for. It'd be like if you went to DQ for an ice cream, but they brought out to you a flaming creme brulee or something, super fancy. you think to yourself, I, I thought I ordered a blizzard. What's this doing here? And yet here we see Jesus knowing what we need far more than what we think we need. And I want to ask you this morning for each of us just to think on this. What do you and I think that we need these days? What is at the top of your list? What is it where you're thinking, if I just had this, and you fill in the blank, then my life would be in order. Now certainly God cares about the this that is at the top of our mind. He does, and he invites us to bring that to him in prayer. But sometimes God surprises us with answers to prayer that we aren't even praying yet. This is why Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Thy will be done. Lord, I'm praying, but but ultimately, Thy will be done. And it's what Jesus models for us in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, My Father, this is right before the cross, take this cup from me and yet may Your will be done. Apparently, the paralyzed man was in need of something that he wasn't asking for, at least not that we see, and that was the forgiveness of his sins. This is a unique story in the Gospels because it links physical illness with the forgiveness of sins. Now, for us, this combination raises a whole bunch of questions, and yet in Jesus' day, they would not have been as caught off guard by it. They would have naturally considered these things together. Sometimes you're reading in the Old Testament and you're not even sure if the passage is talking more about physical healing or about forgiveness or both. And sometimes we get ourselves into trouble when we make hard, fast rules about the way things are, either one way or another. Either never correlating illness and sin, not even allowing for it, or relating them so clearly and so callously that we're like modern-day Pharisees. That's the either-or. The better way is to simply read our Bibles and to let God's Word speak for itself. And here is how the Bible answers this question that sometimes physical illness is related to spiritual illness, and sometimes, oftentimes, it is not. The Bible gives us both. So first, let me give us two examples of where they're linked. I'm just going to give two of many examples. I think of Psalm 41, where David says, Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. They're linked. We also think of, in the New Testament, John 5, the healing of the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus goes and finds that man afterwards. And what does he say? This is John 5, 14. He says, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. They're linked. And there has to be room in our theology for that. It's who God says he is. On the other hand, let's look at the other scenario. Job's friends try to make this link. And so what do they say to Job? They say, Job, you're suffering and your body is covered in sores because of some sin in your life. But God rebukes Job's friends in Job 42 and he says, you have not spoken what is right of me as my servant Job has. Another example now in the New Testament, Jesus corrects his disciples about the man born blind in John chapter 9. He rebukes them and corrects them. And even the premier missionary of the church, the Apostle Paul, suffered from a thorn in the flesh that was not the result of sin in his life. Nor was it healed in that instance. There is not a one to one automatic correlation of illness and sin, of cause and effect. In fact, in the stories of Jesus healing people, he doesn't normally talk about forgiveness. So that's what sets this one apart. This is the exception, which tells us that in this case, Jesus has reason to do so. That reason is not given to us. It's not stated. But it is a pretty safe bet that the paralyzed man looking up at Jesus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said right off the bat to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now into the story come the teachers of the law. These are the religious experts of their day. They loved how important they were. They loved the power that they had over people's lives, the prestige that they carried. And here's what they did. This is their job. They were the interpreters of the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. They were the ones who told people how to be properly religious. But here was the trouble they had run away with this and come up with all kinds of their own interpretations and added all kinds of their own rules. To the number, they had come up with 613 religious rules for you to be properly religious. So where the law is given to us and gives instruction and boundary to our life and relationship with God, the teachers of the law come along and they, in a sense, build fences Around fences, around fences, until pretty soon you can't even see God anymore because of all the rules that they've stacked up around Him. The text says, verse 6 Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. And what a contrast that is, isn't it? To the faith of the four friends, their faith was active. You see the difference? Their faith put them in motion. They got up on the roof, they tore it open, they got their friend to Jesus, but look at what the teachers of the law do. They were just sitting there, watching from a distance, sneering and skeptical, and they thought to themselves, they weren't even saying out loud, they're thinking, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The accusation of blasphemy sounds a little foreign to us. That's probably not in your Monday to Friday vocab, but it was very familiar in Judaism. To commit blasphemy, this big word, was simply to claim to do something that only God can do, in this case, to forgive sins. So it was a very serious offense, and blasphemy was punishable by death as outlined in Leviticus 24. 24. And I don't want to get us too far ahead in the story, but if you and I were to look up to Mark 14, verse 64, you will see blasphemy as the charge on which Jesus is condemned to die. That he is claiming to be God. Now the fascinating thing is that they had it exactly right. That is what Jesus was claiming, both later in the gospel and here. And they just draw the wrong conclusion about it. And look, as I said, they don't even need to say anything. We see in verse 8, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Which, by the way, is also only something that God can do. And Jesus confronts them on it. And I'm just going to share this in a paraphrased fashion. He says, why are you thinking these things? What is easier What's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat, and walk? Now what's the answer to that rhetorical question that he's asking? The easier thing to say is to make the claim that you have just forgiven sins because there's no visible proof whether it's happened or not. The harder thing, meaning the one where we're going to instantly see it, is the healing and walking of a paralyzed man. And so what Jesus is doing here next is he is doubling down. And he says, But so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And then he turns back to the paralyzed man and he says to him, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And in another bated breath kind of moment in this story... The man stands to his feet, rolls up his mat under his arm, and walks out the door. I think the room must have exploded when that happened. I mean, just imagine a professional Minnesota sports team finally won a championship. I mean, the place must have erupted with cheering and shouting and High fives with strangers and a spontaneous dance party. It says everyone was amazed. And they praised God. The crowd draws the right conclusion here. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And you know what was happening? Faith was growing. They were seeing things in Jesus that they had never seen before. And I pray that you and I would have this same experience. That your faith would put you in motion. That it would be active. That it would grow into something beautiful. That you would receive forgiveness in ways that you have not even asked for. And yes, that you would also receive healing in ways that you have never seen. I want to close by telling you about a brother of ours that we've been praying for named Mauricio who's been teaching me a lot about faith. Some of you know Mauricio that he's a husband and father and a business owner in construction and contracting. And very suddenly, Mauricio came down with what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And in about 24 hours, he went from his healthy, normal self strong self, to completely unable to move or to breathe on his own. He literally became a paralyzed man. Mauricio's been in the hospital now for well over a hundred days, trying to regain the ability to move and to breathe. And I want to share with you this morning, with his permission, What Mauricio said to me the other day, he can't talk yet because he's still on the ventilator, but he said to me through the computer, I pray every night not that God would heal me, but that he would be by my side. That is faith that's growing, isn't it? Now we're continuing to believe and ask the Lord for healing. But Mauricio knows that there's something in his life that is even better. And that is his relationship with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. We confess our sin. We ask for healing. And above all, we pray for faith. Lord, that you would grow our relationship with you in new ways and in deeper levels of trust than we have ever known before. We ask this as your children, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.